Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Sharpen Your Search to Buy a Business. You can expect a few surprises and they might change your perception and increase your opportunity. You see, people wanting to buy a business face what appear to be three insurmountable obstacles. Business brokers, buyer competition, and poorly prepared and unrealistic sellers. In this presentation, you're gonna learn how to go over, around, or through them. I'm Ted Leverett, the original business buyer advocate. I'm not a business broker, never have been. For more than 30 years, I've been helping people buy small and mid-sized businesses. My two books go way beyond what you'll hear today how to prepare yourself and find the right business to buy, and how to buy the right business the right way. You can get them at Amazon or from my website, partneronqual.com. Okay, joining me are two highly experienced and successful deal makers, and we're gonna cover at least 12 questions. David Barnett, how about introducing yourself? And if you'd like to, I'd like to hear if there's a, some, some speed bump you've seen searchers fall over to this comment and maybe, a, maybe at least one workaround to it. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm David Barnett. I work mostly in the Main Street space, although I do get up into the lower middle market from time to time. <clears throat> I host a YouTube channel and I've, I've written different books on the topic of buying and selling businesses. One of the most common errors I see a lot of searchers make is that they don't actually work with a definition of what the target is they're looking for. And so what I always um, advise people to do is not to name a business or industry type, but rather to create an attribute list for the business they want to buy. So you might have history in machine shops, for example, instead of just saying, I want to buy a machine shop, you would describe that business. So I want to buy a business that does um, high ticket work for small number of clients that have years-long relationships, and I typically am waiting net 30 to be paid, et cetera. So you describe that business, what it looks like, what the attributes are. And then when you meet another business in a different category that happens to look similar, you can know that this might be a business that you might be interested in. Okay, thank you. How about Kurt Mayer? Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Kurt Meyer. I'm in Seattle. I work for an M&A business brokerage outfit called IBA been around since 75, have a dozen brokers working all industries in manufacturing services and retail. Uh, we're a sell side firm. However, I have a soft spot for buyers. I work with buyers. I take buyer engagements. And uh, a couple things come to mind uh, just to follow on what David said. I've noticed that buyers just tend not to recognize reality. What I mean by that is, quite frankly, they think they're more important than they are. Um, most business brokers on the sell side will treat buyers a dime a dozen, okay? We have 300 vetted, capable, high net worth, high business acumen buyers in our database right now, and we don't have enough inventory to satisfy them. So they have to be prepared. They have to go into this situation pretending that they're looking for another job, even though they're running away from a job. They got to think that they're looking for a job in the eyes of the seller. That's my two cents, Ted, uh, in terms of what I'm seeing out there now. That's pretty important, folks. The reason I have the two people I have on is both David Barnett and Kurt Meyer. 
they're coming from the point of view of the buy side, the sell side, and making deals. One of the biggest mistakes that searchers make is they emulate one another and they just further the buyer competition. Okay, some of you know that one of my claims to fame is helping searchers build a plan so that they can look great. The first words out of your mouth, the way somebody sees you on a Google Google search or on LinkedIn or any place, if it doesn't impress a broker, you're done. You, you've missed all those opportunities. But it's not just brokers. We have searchers mailing letters, sending emails, uh, pigeons. I don't know what in the hell they're doing. But they're not impressing owners and sellers. If you're using a pitch deck for a lower middle market business, you look like a fool. Can't say it any other way. Acquisition criteria. When I do this work for searchers, they send me their acquisition criteria. It's almost laughable. Almost like one of the words is I'm agnostic. What that means is I have no idea what I want, or at least I'll say that. And I think that might impress somebody. It impresses nobody. The other thing that we're going to talk about today is methodology and process. If you don't get this right, it won't matter how well you have built your scripts, the words you're going to use, the messaging, it won't matter. Because if you don't get that process right, other searchers will get there better than you and before you. We'll talk a little bit about prospecting letters. Resume, Kurt said it. You are applying for job of president. So if, if, if the owner of a business that you're approaching on LinkedIn was saying, you know what, I'm going to take a sabbatical for the next couple of years. I need a president to run this thing, a general manager. If, if, if he wouldn't hire you, why in the hell would he sell the business to you? Now, I have workarounds for that. Many of the deals I've done, including the last one over in England, my guy had zero experience in the industry he went in. He's, he's purchased two companies like it in the last year. So we're going to talk about how we do that. You cannot minimize this. Everybody Googles. You Googled me. You need to Google people. So you got to really have that presence. A lot of people like to start with these letters of intents. And for those of you in the UK, heads of terms, you could. My choice is a letter of interest during search. All it does is wet the owner's taste that, that you're putting out some bait. And that bait goes both ways. Because see, it's kind of a flexible document. The minute you issue one of these NDAs and letter of intent, game on. One of the guys who is supposed to be here now isn't. Why? Because about 11 minutes ago, 12 minutes ago, he sent me an email and he said, you're not going to believe it. This deal I've worked on six months just fell through. There were two other buyers bidding. All this time, this searcher thought he was in love with an owner and he was the only one the owner was selling to. And there was no broker. So we can't blame brokers for buyer competition. But the owner, the minute these owners discover they have a saleable product, they'd have to be pretty stupid not to what look out to see who else might have interest. Well, this owner was romancing two other buyers. My guy, unless he wants to outbid the dumbest one, is going to lose the deal. Somebody asked, well, how many deals should I be seeing that are worthwhile? Well, it comes down to how you're searching. But if you're not seeing one, at least one business a month, that if you don't buy it, or at least get it under contract or in due diligence in the next 30 days, somebody else is going to take it away from you. If you're not seeing a doable deal that someone's going to buy, if you don't, you're doing something wrong big time. The key to success is differentiation and credibility. If you're searching and acting like the other searchers, you are a me too product. It's all about branding. You're the brand. You, the brand. The other thing I want to talk about is being disingenuous. 
what about this deal making during what uncertain times? Well, it's pretty uncertain now, but guess what? My guy in England, he bought an absolutely slam dunk, wonderful company last March. And about 11 and a half months later, he bought another one. Couldn't be more uncertain, particularly in England, which was pretty much totally shut down, kind of like in Australia. And he's got two companies running. So guess what? Just learn how to buy the right business the right way. And don't buy losers. And the other thing, I know it's a little self-serving, but too many searchers are holding off assembling a business acquisition team. And I'm not talking about people like their cousin or the guy who did their divorce. I'm talking about lawyers and accountants particularly who have a long history of working on the kind and size of deal you want to do. You hire these people up front because they can tell you what red flags to look for. In an hour, I, I tell my clients, you should have a one-hour meeting with a lawyer and accountant you've hired before you begin your search, and you say, what is it I really need to be paying attention to that's going to come up in legal and financial due diligence? So in an hour, they'll give you four or five items. Guess what? Pre-LOI due diligence, that means search, that's where you raise some of those issues. What about you guys, David, Kurt, anyone want to talk about this uncertain times? How has the pandemic uh, affected business activity? And I would say, uh, just speaking from the Pacific Northwest, that we have seen an all-time level of transactions and activity. And what that means is getting to your point about putting this team together, for the life of me, and, and this isn't self-serving, believe me, because I'm a sell-side guy, but for the life of me, I don't understand why an, a serious buyer searcher wouldn't engage a buy-side representative if they're a first-time buyer. I mean, you know, that, that buy side representative could first go out to the listing side broker and see if they'll split the commission so it wouldn't cost the buyer anything. But even if the buyer has to pay a representative, they should do that. Now, I know that I don't think you're a buy side broker, Ted, but I think David gets into this and maybe he can speak to that because just as the seller has representation in a capable business intermediary, I believe the buyer should as well, quite frankly. David? I, I don't act as a, as a broker or have any kind of agency relationship with any of my clients. I strictly work on a consulting basis. So I'll help them look at information provided by a broker or a seller and help them analyze it and, and sort of coach them through the process. But again, most of what I'm dealing with are what we would call the main street size businesses, which are typically smaller. There was a, there was a question in the chat box. Uh, did you want me to address that, Ted? Yep. About being industry agnostic? Yep. So so when I, when I talk about identifying another industry, one of the big um, black holes that searchers will often fall into is that if they're looking at one business after another in different industries, what you'll have in different industries is different sets of standardized, you know, sort of uh, the way the financials are set up, for example. In one industry, direct labor is in the cost of goods sold. In another industry, all the labor is part of the overhead, et cetera. And if you're looking at one industry after another, you end up having to redo a learning curve for every new business that you're looking at because you're unfamiliar with what's going on in that business. So let's say that you were going out there and you wanted to get into a business that built <clears throat> road building machinery. When you create that attribute list, you might then discover that people who make agricultural ma machinery are very similar. Well, you could then decide to include that industry and then you can learn about that industry. When I work with people who are searching or, or buyers, if they're looking at one business after another in the same industry, what ends up happening is they get faster and faster at triaging opportunities because they don't have to do the learning curve over and over again. 
And if you identify specific industries by looking at your attribute list, you can grow your competency in more than one industry. It doesn't necessarily mean looking at everything. It means identifying where you can go next. Some people that have to search within a certain geography, their ideal business that they start looking for, there might only be a dozen targets within a, a, an area that they're happy you know, buying within. Well, then they need to go to a different industry. But if they just start looking at everything, this is where you get an example, I think, Ted, you mentioned, where people will end up spending years looking at things. And, and I've met plenty of those people. And every time they get excited about something, and then as they learn about that industry, they realize maybe why that business is still available for sale and hasn't been taken by someone who already knows that industry. Okay, let's go to question number two. Why are some people not seeing enough of what they want to buy? Well, guess why? Just search like the savviest buyers. You're going to see endless, endless. You just have to be better than the rest of them. And to do that, you got to know what to do. Keep, them, keep this in mind. Lost income opportunity. Every month that you're on the sidelines thinking about it or polishing your search technique is costing you what? 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 a month? So what gets me is people get down in due diligence and they're negotiating to get $100,000 off a $2 million price tag. What in the hell is that all about? If it takes them two months to negotiate it, lose the deal and have to start over, well, they just kissed off. What? If, if, if their burn rate is 50,000 a month of lost income, lost income is the money you make for your management pay and the business profit. So the, the reason people are not seeing enough is because either they're trying to be too picky too fast or they just don't know how to search. So how do I get more and better deal? Search, but here's the problem. Be plausible. I started this event by saying, I see so much nonsense from people who say they are searchers. You have to have plausible messaging, a broker or an owner. Hey, even a bank has to think your messaging makes sense. If it doesn't, why would they talk to you? The other thing is, if you want to have better deal flow, you absolutely have to avoid or beat buyer competition. You are going to lose if you're competing. It's just that simple. That doesn't mean you're going to make a bad deal. Well, it might, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. It just means that it's going to take longer and you could get cut out of the best deals. The other thing is keep searching all the way until deal completion and then later. The reason my guy in England got deal number two is we searched with pretty heavily with about three companies up to the first done deal. That was March 2020. And we kept the search pipeline full for another year. Actually, it's still full. And we did number two 11 months later. So if you keep searching, guess what? Stuff can fall in your lap. And you're way more credible for deal number two than you ever were for deal number one. Anybody want to comment on that? Well, can I, can I just say something is, is that once you've done an acquisition, uh, the, the business owners out there you talk to are going to see you in a whole different light. Once you've done several acquisitions, what you'll find is that your ability to negotiate terms changes entirely. So I've, I've got a client who has actually completed three acquisitions. Now he's making offers where he's asking for entirely seller finance deals with like reasonable down payments and the sellers are looking at him and looking at his track record and looking and he'll, he'll show them the financials from the businesses he's already bought and show them his ability to operate these companies. And he's having much more interesting conversations than he's ever been able to have before. Okay, let's talk about outsourcing search. This is a biggie. 
I get, and you'll see it on LinkedIn and other places, people asking, well, should I pay a finder? Done correctly, you can save a lot of time and money by outsourcing some, some of the grunt work, the grunt work. That means phone call, record keeping, emailing, just all that stuff that nobody likes to do. And maybe even some of the initial outreach, like using a telemarketer or an appointment setter to screen owners and get appointments. That kind of stuff is pretty safe. Here's what's not safe. Contracting with finders. Highly risky. There's so much dissatisfaction with it. If you want to know about it, I'm not going to publicly talk about it here. Send me an email and I'll send you the two-page document I give my client that blisters this whole idea of paying somebody some fee to go out and find owners for you who will talk to you. Because in the small print, they can shut down your opportunity in an entire industry. Dave, you want to talk about it? And also Kurt. Uh, I, I I don't actually recommend people go and, and pay people to do this. I, I do sometimes recommend that people get some outsourced help, particularly if you want to be sifting through large amounts of database, like if you're using one of these company list databases to create a, a prospect list and you want to sort that into a suspect list or, or vice versa, uh, you might want to have a helper, but I've, I've never advised anyone to go and sort of outsource this entirely. I agree with David there. Um, my advice to any buyer would be, it would be the same advice you would give. I'm sure you will be giving here. And that is to uh, reach out to the business brokerage firms that uh, focus in the, uh, in the area of the criteria that you're searching for, because they may not put these opportunities out in the public realm. And, uh, you know, we keep conf confidentiality is very important to us for our sellers. So, you know, it's grunt work. To be sure, you've got to first prove yourself to the broker, unfortunately. But, you know, if you're serious about it, that would be my recommendation. And it doesn't cost you anything. Well, it does cost you a whole lot. It costs you wasted opportunity if you don't move quickly with that broker to find a deal and do a deal. Time is money. Let's talk about how to handle this question of net worth and available funds. In other words, cash. You need to be able to show the money the cash for your down payment and deal-making costs upfront in the first interview or meeting with a broker, owner, seller, and probably a bank, because they don't want to play ball with you either to find out you don't have what it takes to, to do your share of the funding. Keep in mind that buyer competition aggregates this problem. If you want seller financing or if you want creative financing, you do not want buyer competition because a buyer who has cash. And right now we have a whole lot of unemployed, smart people out there with money who are quitting their jobs because of the pandemic or their middle age or who knows what. They can write checks. And if they're my client, we show that money up front in the very first meeting. So think about that one. Remember, money talks, bullshit walks. Sellers tell me, you know, I hear or brokers actually tell me more. They'll say, we asked the buyer about the money and the buyer says, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I can be, I, I, could, I can show it to you, but they don't. So let's use the money as the bait to hook the broker and seller. I would add one more thing there, Ted, what? to consider if you're a buyer, and that is uh, take the time to establish a relationship with a banker that can pre-qualify you. Uh, that way, you know, you can share that with the um, uh, the broker that you're approaching, you know, to find a business or whatever and say, look, I'm, I'm pre-qualified uh, by this bank for an SBA loan up to, you know, X millions of dollars or whatever. Okay. Part of this question comes from somebody who said, what about if I'm looking at 
asset-like businesses like websites or SAAS kind of stuff. How is, how, is, how is the cash or my available funds going to affect that if I don't see either any assets that I'm going to be able to borrow against? Well, if you don't have cash, then you better not be looking. Well, you, you probably ought to look at asset-heavy businesses, and maybe you'll find a way to do a deal with the hard money boys. The bottom line is it takes cash to buy businesses. Doesn't it, David? If, uh, if a seller is willing to sell a business and not get any cash on closing or, or, or whatnot, then they'll just, they'll just sell it to someone within their own company. I see this a lot in very small businesses where there's some kind of urgency. I think of a beauty salon, right? I mean, the person suddenly has to sell. Well, if they're willing to do a completely you know, seller finance deal, they'll just choose their most capable hairdresser and sell it to them. They don't need to find someone outside if they're willing to do that kind of thing. They, they, they can just go make that deal next week and as quickly as a lawyer can make the paperwork. Look, one of the things I do when someone contacts me and they say, can you help me through the process? I say, show me your money. If they can't show me their money, I say, read my books. If they say $19 is too much, well, then I know they're idiots. <laughs> so the, the bottom line is if you don't have the money, pause until you get it. And you either get it on your own or you put investors together. What about those business brokers? Are they a help or a hindrance? Hey. <laughs> is that Kurt laughing? Yes, it is. All right. <laughs> By the way, folks, I am not a broker basher, period. I've never been one, never will be one. I never sell businesses. Brokers can be a help or a hindrance. But guess what? The best brokers, they welcome the best prepared searchers. They welcome the best reasonable searchers. And if you have the money, don't forget these guys, brokers, they want to earn a commission. They want to get that inventory off their shelf and go do the next deal. I can't imagine anybody willing to work harder for you, buyer, to get a done deal than a business broker. Now, I know there are a lot of them out there that are hindrances because that's either they're idiots or they're just jerks or they're incompetent. So ignore all those. I mean, there are more brokers out there than we can talk to. So when you find a few that are good, and there are a few in every single market, every market. I work in Australia. I'm just starting in New Zealand, Canada, the USA, the UK. And particularly over in the UK, they say all the brokers are crap. Wrong. There are really some wonderful ones. So what do you do? Don't say you're industry agnostic when you're looking for a business to buy. Say, you know what? Here are two kinds of businesses I've done a lot of research in, or I used to be the vice president of a company in that niche. And let's start with that. And guess what? Business brokers, they know that most buyers are not going to buy what they initially set out to buy. They know that. So you'll tell them your pitch. They'll show you their listings. Guess what? They probably won't have a listing for it. Guess what next? They'll say, but have you thought about this? Bingo. All of a sudden, you didn't have to say you were agnostic. A broker says, given what I see as your background, you ought to look at these two things. So I say, when you find a good broker, you hang with them for a while. I also say, all my clients start with brokers. I have to arm wrestle some of them and threaten them because they've had bad experiences. If they're my client, they start with brokers. First of all, we get to play the field, we get the low hanging fruit. The buyer gets beat up as he should from the good brokers to understand how the game's played. And if we find a deal, we're in due diligence within a month and we're deal making you know, a month or two later. But we don't wait to the end of that one or two or four month process. 
we, we can survey every good broker in any city in America within a week. At the end of the week, if we're not submitting a letter of intent or a, a letter of interest to that broker for a deal, we launch our proprietary search. Proprietary search, boys, means uh, you do it yourself. You're going to go around brokers. You're going directly to owners. But we start with brokers because if we can do a deal, why not? Anybody want to talk about that hot topic? Helper hindrance? I'd like to ask Kurt a question. Kurt, over at your firm, do you guys ever have businesses for sale that you don't end up putting up on your website or on the different markets? Absolutely. In fact, uh, I would say the majority of our businesses are not put on the website because, again, we, uh, we're concerned about confidentiality and, and we realize that uh, even though we properly vet buyers by having them sign a general NDA and obtain their acquisition criteria and thoroughly review their financial statement, uh, we're not going to put anything in front of a buyer that they don't have the capability of closing. So that for sure, David, we, most of our stuff is kept close to us. Mm -hmm. And to your point, Ted, about, you know, hindrance or not, uh, for all you buyers, remember that the broker can influence his seller, right? I mean, the seller expects the broker to get the best price in terms and get the best buyer. And in my mind, the best buyer is the one that can get it done. Okay. That's serious. That has the money to your point, Ted, you know, not going to get it or these freaking search funds, you know, Oh, I got all the money in the world. Well, what do you have <laughs> in cash right now? Because as Ted said, I want to see cash. I want to see earnest money with the LOI. Good brokers are definitely a help. Bad brokers are definitely a hindrance. Yeah. I like the Q word. I like to say qualified business broker when I'm talking about the positive, you know, help that a business broker can provide to someone. Because there are a lot out there that, that to Ted's point, are not doing anyone any service. Um, you, know, the, you, you see the whole gamut, especially in the space I'm in with the, with the smaller businesses where it's, you know, they're basically just asking people what they want for their business and slapping it up onto biz buy sell. And so when you're, when you're looking, for, to, looking for a relationship with brokers, you really have to sort them and figure out who is the qualified and who are not. And even those people, those brokers that are not qualified, they can sometimes have something that's interesting and you have to be able to navigate sometimes through the broker to try to get, to get that business um, with, without them derailing it. Well put. Okay. How about broker management? Well, the way you stay top of mind is being first choice. Well, here's, here's, where they go, here's where most searches go wrong. They haven't thought about how to demonstrate how they're going to migrate from what they've been doing to what they want to do. I'm not talking about the buying a business part. I'm talking about if you actually buy the business. So you need to be able to show brokers and owners up front in the first 30 seconds. I'm not kidding about this. I can demonstrate to you that I have the ability to migrate from whatever it is you know I do because you Googled me to what your business is. If you can't do that in 30 to 60 seconds in that first conversation, why would any broker or owner talk to you? They just won't. And if they do, you better worry about it because they wouldn't hire you as president, would they? The other thing is brokers like to know you understand the process of buying a business. Said the number one question searchers are asking me is, what do I need? And do you need to get in the mind of sellers? So what are sellers doing? They want to get into the mind of buyers. Uh, let's talk about alternatives. Okay, drip campaign. Here's what a drip, they're referring to email, where you have, you buy some 
software and it automatically sends out email to a pop a population you've targeted because you've got a mailing list somewhere and it sends them out all at once or daily or hourly and it sends them to, you segment the list all that kind of stuff yeah it sounds real good you can go to certain um social media website and these guys are all lit up on it <laughs> good luck we do it once in a while here's what works we go to the brokers that we know are advertising the kind of businesses that interest us. If they don't have something, we just go directly to owners and we don't drip email to them on a weekly or bi-weekly. We pick up the phone and call them, or maybe we mail them a letter and then call them, uh, or maybe we'll send them something useful in their business. Oh boy, whoever does that. So they could actually use that has to do with something happening in their industry that opens the door because they want to talk to us about some big event that's going on. We talk to a whole bunch of owners in the same niche saying, here's where we see your industry going. We're going to own a business in your niche. You can meet us now or when we own the first one. You want to hear our plan for the industry? We had no problem getting appointments, none, zero. Because all the other searchers were sending letters. I'm agnostic, but if you're for sale, let's talk. <laughs> I'm not kidding. The problem with a lot of these drip campaigns is they're technology-based and people are forgetting it's all about brand management. I said it earlier, you are the brand. So we need to get awareness that you're out there. And, and, and what we really need to do is humanize you. And what I don't like in a lot of these so-called drip campaigns is it shows a picture of this fancy corporate website and you got to go three levels down to see Buzz's picture. And it's like, oh, there he is. Think about how you can humanize it. Well, you better get accurate contact information if you're going to have a drip campaign. You'd be sending email to people and not even know they got the email. So you can, for a very small amount of money, send these email lists, which are basically uh, full of a lot of crap. In other words, they're bad. You can send it to a service that at least it'll clean the emails and let you know they're for real. Okay, David, you've seen this a lot and probably Kurt's on the other end of getting the letters. Let's hear about it. In order for any kind of communication to be taken seriously, you have to be able to communicate that you have actually taken the time to have some sort of understanding about who's getting the communication. So there's there's actually a there's a CPA in Georgia. His name escapes me at the moment. He's actually written a book about growing CPA firms through acquisition. And he gets emails all every week from people randomly sending him an email because he owns a CPA firm asking if he wants to sell. If any one of them Googled his name, they would know that he's written a book about buying CPA firms, right? <laughs> and so, so these people obviously have not even taken the time to, to find out who they're sending something out to. So the, the more invested you appear in your communication, the more seriously the recipient of the communication is going to take you. Remember, when you're searching, you're marketing, but then you need to make the sale. You have to sell yourself to somebody who responds to you. And, in this, and ad, anybody who knows anything about advertising pretty much knows that most people don't buy on the first impression. So what we know in advertising, and I know it having been on thousand or more searches, that it takes about three to five. That means three, four or five touches, touches with an owner before that owner is going to take you seriously enough to reveal that confidential information. Three to five touches. I have searches, including my own clients, you know, they throw their paws up in the air and whine because they, they've reached out twice and they couldn't get an appointment. Mwah. Well, you got to reach out 
three, four or five times. And each time we do it, we'll change the message in a little bit and something will hit. All right, why do brokers and sellers, uh, why don't they take people serious? Oh no, no, this is the one about self-funded or search funds. I was on one of the social media sites a while back and a broker on the listing on Biz Buy Sell, the top line, the headline says no search funds. Why? Well, a lot of brokers don't like search funds. Why? Because they're the MBA type. Not too many small and mid-sized business owners are delighted to meet MBAs looking for businesses. Trust me on that one. So if you're an MBA, keep it to yourself and talk about how you're going to pay for this business and run it when you get in there. And that is the problem with search funds. Not only do are they a lot of them run by MBAs who never even had a job, but they also don't know how to search. So somehow they were able to trick friends and family to give them money, or maybe someone at Harvard who was in their school, you know, in one of their classes who has a rich uncle, and now they got a quarter million bucks they're using for search. But guess what they don't have? They don't have money to do the deal. Every broker knows it. They don't have money to do the deal. So two months into due diligence, you're talking to the bank and somebody someday says, can we actually see the buyer's equity going in? And that's when the search fund says, well, I'm gonna send this out for approval. And most of the time it's not approved. David, you've got your eyes up, let's hear it. Oh, I just, sometimes people, who are doing these search fund projects will find me on, on YouTube and they'll, they'll send me the question of how they get investors to commit before they have the deal because they, have, they keep getting the, the sellers and brokers wanting them to prove funds. And it's a chicken and egg problem that you can well appreciate. And most investors are gonna say, sure, I'll look at deals. I'm interested in investing in deals, uh, but they're not going to write a check and let it sit in a trust account, for example, unless there's a deal for it to go into, right? And so, so, you know, when people say to me, you know, I have investors, I'm like, great, we'll pool the money together, you know, create, create some kind of entity and put the money into a bank account. And then you have, then you can show people, but it's very few people are able to pull that off. Very, very few people are able to really do it. And I would echo what uh, David is saying there. Very few of them do. And uh, they come to us all the time with the same story, same patented story. Again, I don't have time for that. I say, show me the money. Show me the money. Show me that it's been pooled. Show me that it's in a bank account and be serious because you're competing with people that have cash. I mean, you know, here in the Seattle area, my God, we got every Amazon, Microsoft, uh, warehouse or Google person who wants to buy something. Believe me, they've got the cash in hand to buy a small business that throws off two, 300,000 a year for, for themselves. They really do. Okay, here's a couple more tips. What about seller's market? Hey, guess what? This is a good thing. It's a good thing. Seller's market means there's something valuable. So guess what? It is a seller's market, but that means there are wonderful businesses because only nitwits are looking at businesses that are crap. So if it's a wonderful business, it's cash flowing. Okay, so maybe you have to pay top of market. I didn't say overpay. Ted never says that. But maybe you're not going to get the bargain of a lifetime. But so what? If it's costing you twenty to 50000 a month on the sidelines, just think about it for a moment. Make sense? It makes sense. Plus, if you're a first-time buyer in particular, you know, you don't want to screw up your first, uh, your first attempt here. You know, I mean, if you're uh, somebody like David was mentioning that has been uh, doing this and has done it two, three, four times, they're experienced, they might take some sort of distress business or whatever, go after that. But I mean, by and large, 
my advice to first-time buyers is, uh, you know, look for something that's solid. And so to your point, Ted, you know, being in a seller's market just means that it's, you know, that there's solid opportunities out there. Hmm. And, and where I deal more in the smaller businesses, um, I like to actually say that I don't believe there is any such thing as a, as a market for businesses because markets are all very distinct one from the next. So while you might say there's a market for four-door used cars or a market for three-bedroom homes, because there's many of them and many buyers and many sellers, you could have someone with an engineering background who is looking for some kind of business that would take advantage of their, their understanding of processes and, and things like this. And you could have a very profitable flower shop, but that engineer is highly unlikely to buy the flower shop, right? And so it just kind of demonstrates that you got, there's different markets within the, the realm of business and depending on what you're looking for and what your background is and what skills you deliver, some things could be very hot while it's possible for you to still find a deal that, that you know, offers good value. If someone wants to hire me, I say, you better have a real good reason wanting to buy a business that has pre-tax net cash flow under $500,000. I know that there's this whole market out there for smaller deals, but guess what? If something goes wrong on a smaller deal, there's not much margin for error. So if you have the money, go bigger. I didn't say go as big as you can, didn't say it. The sweet spot is these businesses that are pulling out about 500K pre-tax because they're too small for most private equity and other professional advisor, advisor, uh, investors, meaning we can have them all to ourselves, and they're too big for most of the searchers. So that's a sweet spot. And then if you retain some of your money, we got enough to go out and do another two or three. That's the sweet spot. David, I know you work these markets. What do you think about this? Yeah, I actually refer to the 500K EBITDA as, as the pig peg line, because in certain industries, those private equity groups will go down that low. If it's a, if it's a type of business that can be easily rolled into a platform business that they have, and so I noticed that the multiples change quite a bit once you cross that $500,000 line. And so really it, it, it depends on your resources. When you get below that line, that's what I call the main street space. I really tell people you're doing a combination of investment and job search at the same time, because you're going to be buying something uh, where you are likely going to become the general manager of it. And so your own skills, I liked what you said earlier about being a job applicant for the president's role, because especially in that sub 500K space, your own background, work history, knowledge, experience is going to be very important uh, because that, you know, the seller is going to take away most of the intellectual power of the business when they leave and you're the one that has to replace it. And so there's even more of that job matching stuff, I think, below 500K. Let's talk about business cycle and valuations. On some of the social media sites that I'm on and I pay attention to searcher talk, there's a reason why 96 searchers are continuing to send me these emails or posting me, commenting on social network, asking if I can introduce them. They don't hire me, but they want to know if I could just maybe gift them a good opportunity. Well, that answer is no. And some of them are sitting on the sidelines costing 20 to 50,000 bucks a month and not having done a deal because they're worried about the business cycle and the valuation. I probably should be able to stop right there, get it? So what I say to my clients, if they're going to do a letter of intent or a heads of turns in the UK, my question is, before you sign that, 
ask yourself, what proof is there that you could sell that business 90 days after you buy it on the terms you're offering? If you could, then I say we go hard into due diligence and try to do a deal. Kurt, what do you think? I, I absolutely agree with you. You have to be confident that uh, if after 90 days you can't turn around and, and get what you paid for it, then something's wrong. So I agree with you. And of course, this is why buyers and searches, you need your own team. I mean, just think about it. Okay, here's another question. Businesses with sales of a million or more less likely to fail? Well, I've seen lots of successful businesses with revenue of a million bucks. I've seen lots of successful businesses with profit of a million bucks go tits up within a year because the buyer wasn't qualified to run the business. So guess what? It comes down to this. Write it down. This is so important. Competitive, sustainable advantages. I don't care what size the business is. If the owner and if there's a broker, they're going to help you find this one out. If the, if the business has sustainable competitive advantages that are going to withstand changing hands, you have to go in there and try to wreck it. You have to try to wreck it. We look, we're looking at companies where we can keep existing management and they're small businesses, but they're good. And as we do two or three of them together, well, guess what? We'll upgrade the management. So it all comes down to sustainable competitive advantages. Yeah, you know, Marlon, uh, the answer to that, your question is yes. You know, we, uh, before we take an engagement on, uh, we have to make sure that the seller is very transparent and that, uh, you know, all the ad backs and, and discretionary uh, expenses and everything else, you know, are all cleaned up and presentable and make sense. Uh, it doesn't make sense for us to sell a business that can't be successful for the buyer. A good broker will look for a win-win. Uh, yes, we represent the seller, but we want that buyer to be successful. And we're greedy because as Ted knows, small businesses uh, tend to change ownership every eight, seven, eight years on average. And we want that buyer to remember uh, the experience they had and say to themselves, hey, I bought this business uh, through uh, a broker from IBA representing the seller. Can you imagine how good that, and they, and they treated me well as a buyer. Can you imagine how good they're gonna treat me as a seller? So yeah, we do all that stuff, Marlon, for, for our sellers. But there are adjustments, but I'll give you something. Um, I saw a deal go bad this week when um, the buyer and seller and broker all agreed on the ad backs. Buyer said, hey, this is fine. I'm willing to accept them. I'm willing to pay the price. And the bank said, no, we will not accept those ad banks, period. That was the end of that financing. Okay, whew. I hope we've been useful. And thanks again to Kurt Meyer and David Barnett for sharing their expertise. You can find them and me on LinkedIn and elsewhere online. So I'm Ted Leverett the original business buyer advocate. You can find more and better opportunities and you can make better deals sooner if you contact me for help. Oh, and don't forget my books, How to Prepare Yourself and Find the Right Business to Buy and How to Buy the Right Business the Right Way. You can get them on Amazon and from my website, partneroncall.com. Thank you.